Why was the basketball court all wet? Because the players kept dribbling on it. The dad joke. <laughs> Corny, groan-worthy, but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids. What did the buffalo say when he dropped his son off for school? Bye, son. <laughs> so take a moment to make your kid laugh, because dad jokes rule. Make your kid laugh today. Go to fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Cipriano Apollo! Yeah! Friday night in Columbus, Ohio, and they're packed up to the rafters, standing room only, to watch the chill. A minor league hockey team two steps below the big time. It may be minor league compared to what uh, someone else has, but it's major league to us, and we love them. Program. Six months ago, there was nothing here. Professional hockey had failed three times in Columbus. Then came the big sell. They went to the people with an aggressive advertising campaign stressing mayhem as entertainment. The one thing you think of when you think of Friday the 13th is the real cheesy movies with the axe murder and the hockey mask, so... This approach that we use, it's not, it may not be traditional, but, it, but it's very effective, and it's not, uh, I don't consider it in any way offensive, so uh, it's just, you know, it's good marketing. It's marketing that sometimes might offend some other people. It would offend a hockey purist, but, uh, but it works. It surely does. And besides hockey, here's what you get for your $9. <laughs> The national anthem played on a tenor saxophone. A beach ball to play with. Puck shooting contests. Sometimes frozen chickens are substituted for the puck. Free pizzas if you can catch one. And between period shows that the night we were there included something called ice polo. It's fun to work in hockey. Hockey fans make it fun, too. The people, that, the participation of the people that go to our games, they're crazy. Seems like the audience gets involved with it. It's not a bunch of old fuddy-duddy sitting around. Go team! During games, the front office people from the president on down work the crowd like a posse of politicians pushing the product. Wild and crazy guys hiding in business suits. And we're all relatively young, and we all grew up on, you know, David Letterman and the Saturday Night Live, and we sit around and quote Caddyshack movie lines all the time. So, you know, we all are kind of all on the same wavelength. And apparently on the same wavelength as their fans. Attendance averages about 5,000 a game, double their expectations. The chill is hot. It's not work. Oh, it's not, it's not work. This isn't work. This is to have 6,400 people smiling and having a great time. Makes you, makes the work worth it. I mean, there's nothing more, nothing more to be said. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's buckle up for safety, everybody. How you doing? My name is Tim Hanlon, and this is Good Seeds Still Available, the curious little podcast that uh, we like to do for you each and every week. And uh, it's devoted to what used to be in professional sports. We try to go to great lengths to find great stories for you, and this week is no exception. And, and of course, we, we don't spend a whole lot of time on minor league teams because the Lord knows there's plenty of top-tier major league franchises and uh, and circuits out there and 
you know, that have come and gone. And just there's a whole just gigantic pile of those that we have yet to get to. But we do make an exception every once in a while uh, for stories that uh, have some connection to the pro ranks, the top tier pro ranks. Uh, and this is a case in point this week. Our our conversation this week is around, as you heard in that clip from the late, great Ray Gandalf of uh, then at the time ABC Sports, but longtime CBS uh, News prior to that. Uh, his little story from uh, early in January, actually, 1992, uh, about the team that we're going to talk about this week, the Columbus Chill of the then East Coast Hockey League, the ECHL. Uh, with our guests this week, David Pateson and Craig Murs, uh, instrumental uh, in the uh, founding and the telling of this story. The ECHL uh, as a league uh, and the Columbus Chill in particular as a team, trying to break through the uh, the relative dearth, if you will, of professional sports in, in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, you know, prior to the 1990s, you know, the only real professional sports uh, team of any note uh, in Columbus, aside from a little... Uh, dalliance here and there with the horizon of the uh, Continental Basketball Association and the Columbus Clippers, of course, of the triple A uh, baseball setup there, uh, the uh, franchise uh, uh, long time with uh, related to or affiliated with the uh, New York Yankees uh, is, uh, you know, kind of bereft. Uh, yeah, minor league hockey uh, existed uh, in the late 60s uh, in Columbus with the uh, long uh, ago Columbus Checkers uh, and in the 70s, two teams, the Golden Seals and then the Owls from 73 to 77. But other than that, that was pretty much it. And uh, uh, David Pateson, one of our guests this week, who will, who was the general manager of the very successful minor league Indianapolis Ice, uh, was part of a uh, a process to expand in the ECHL with sports entrepreneur Horn Chen out of Chicago. Uh, he himself, uh, quite a prolific uh, investor in minor league sports, to bring hockey. Originally, maybe the idea was to bring it to, to Cleveland with this ECHL, but no, Columbus sort of hit the radar. A little less competitive, uh, maybe a little bit more a fertile opportunity. But boy, oh boy, that Ohio State sports thing, it's really difficult to break through that, right? I mean, Ohio State uh, football is, is, is basically a borderline religion. Uh, the horseshoe and... and and it just to dominate sports culture, the Buckeyes do. Uh, certainly the uh, college basketball team at Ohio State certainly has really made great strides over the last couple of decades and was certainly doing so in the 90s as well. Uh, and frankly, just athletics generally in Ohio State is just it's basically synonymous. So, you know, to be a brand new pro sports franchise, even of a minor league variety, I mean, you know, good luck, I guess, is the uh, the sort of. Uh, exhortation and the and the greeting that, that one receives when uh, arriving in the town, I guess. Uh, but boy, oh boy, this team certainly did stick out. As you heard in that clip, they really uh, figured out that uh, they had not only a market, that is young college students and, and young professionals having perhaps recently graduated, just ready-made for some kind of excitement in the, in the cold winter months uh, that maybe Ohio State was not providing or just otherwise, and not a whole lot of competition, frankly. Uh, for sports or the entertainment dollar. And they really went out of their way to kind of set themselves apart, right? With wacky promotions. I mean, there's pizza involved. There's frozen Cornish game hens uh, as part of that mix. You have uh, various uh, 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 large, shall we say, ladies singing national anthems involved and, and all kinds of other hijinks. Uh, and it became an event for sure in Columbus 
uh, up at the old uh, Ohio Expo Center Coliseum, up at the fairgrounds there, now known as the Taft Coliseum. It's still around. Uh, but boy, oh boy, that place was rocking with the Columbus chill. And the chief instigators of that story, David Pateson, the general manager uh, of that team, the guy who kind of put it all together, and uh, and Craig Murs, the, uh, the the longtime sports writer at the Columbus Dispatch, uh, they're our guests this week. And they, are, of course, have written the uh, definitive story of the chill called Chill Factor, how our minor league hockey team changed the city forever. It's the story of the 1990s. Columbus Chill, it's available in a hardcover. It came out in, uh, in 2015, but it'll also be available. It's now available actually now for pre-order in an updated paperback version. You'll find a link to it on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode 169 and you can conveniently find a link to either the current or a pre-order the future version of said book. Uh, but we're going to get into and give you a taste of it uh, this week uh, with our chat coming up. With Dave and Craig, and uh, it's fun-filled. It's uh, intriguing. It's uh, it's a real taste of, of minor league hockey, Columbus, and sports. Uh, you know, look, if you're a Columbus Blue Jackets fan, you need to know the story about this Columbus Chill franchise, although it doesn't seem any, any direct relationship. It is absolutely foundational to why the Blue Jackets are there in the first place. The arena, for God's sakes, nationwide arena, it wouldn't be there without the Chill. Right. Hockey as a culture, you know, wouldn't uh, have come an NHL flavor in the late 90s, early 2000s without the chill laying the base in the 90s. Uh, all of that story of the Columbus Blue Jackets is absolutely related directly or indirectly. It doesn't really matter how you kind of uh, sort of frame it. It is absolutely part of uh, the legacy that uh, was founded. By the Columbus Chill, the late, great Columbus Chill. And we get into that conversation in just a few moments' time with Dave and Craig coming up in a moment or two. First, a little promotional stuff. Let's get that out of the way, shall we? We don't want to get out of the way. We want to celebrate. We want to celebrate our friends at Streaker Sports. Streakersports.com. Uh, that's their website. And they are the purveyor of sports culture. And they uh, they overindulge. And not only just great sports culture stuff from all different corners of the sporting uh, landscape, but the area that we love to celebrate uh, especially is their deep and uh, prodigious collection of shirts from just all kinds of great defunct leagues that uh, are no longer with us but uh, live on in our memories. And why not celebrate those memories in beautiful T-shirt form? And we're talking the highest quality stuff out there from our friends at Streaker Sports. You love the ABA? How about the World Hockey Association? You remember the WFL or the USFL? These are things that we love on this show. Roller Hockey International? How about Pro Beach Hockey? Also a part of the sort of indoor slash outdoor uh, roller hockey craze. The Major Indoor Lacrosse League. Remember that? That's sort of the precursor of today's NLL. Uh, the World, uh, we said the World. No, the, uh, uh, the Western Hockey League. That was the sort of the impetus for the NHL expanding in the late uh, in the late 60s, or the North American Soccer League, perhaps one of our favorites. Yeah, of course. But we also want to celebrate their newest collection. It's the IHL, the International Hockey League. Remember the Inter Indianapolis Ice that I just mentioned, uh, David Pateson's uh, uh, team? Well, they're, they're commemorated in a 1996 Indianapolis Ice t-shirt that you can find on streakersports.com. You like the uh, the IHL league itself? Well, there's a, there's a great shirt devoted to it there, or perhaps one of the uh, scores of of teams from that league, the Manitoba Moose, 
Uh, do you remember the San Francisco Spiders? Uh, maybe the Peoria Rivermen or the San Diego Gulls, perhaps. The Flint Generals are commemorated in T-shirt form. The Fort Wayne Comets on WOWO, WOWO, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. The Cleveland Lumberjacks. Oh, <laughs> yes. How about the Albany Choppers? And the Houston Arrows and the Chicago Wolves are still around, actually, today. All of those shirts and those teams and more. The Cincinnati Cyclones, can't forget them, all of them. In great T-shirt form and wonderful colors, you can find all of those shirts and then some at streakersports.com. And of course, we've got a promo code for you. We would not leave you hanging. How about 10% off all of your purchases? Yeah, why not? Use the promo code GOODSEATS and 10% off of your uh, of your purchases are, are is yours, courtesy of us and our friends at Streaker Sports. Again, promo code GOODSEATS at streakersports.com. And again, uh, it's 10% off all of your purchases. Thank you to Streaker Sports, the purveyor of sports culture. And we thank you for checking them out, giving them a purchase, hopefully giving us a few shekels of love while you do so. And of course, we appreciate you not only doing that, but listening to our fun conversation coming up. Here it comes. Let's talk Columbus chill hockey, shall we? It's the 1990s. It's Columbus, Ohio. And it's our friends Dave Pateson and Craig Murs. Here's our chat. Please, as always... Enjoy. Craig, why don't you set up uh, a, a little bit of uh, how you sort of uh, discovered this Columbus Chill story? Uh, you're a, a journalist by trade, a sports writer, yeah? Yes, began at the uh, Columbus Dispatch in uh, 1981, almost said 91. I am really old. And uh, out of Otterbein now University, I'll give a plug there. And in uh, May of 1991, I was working part-time in the sports or part sports, part, you know, dispatch the city beat reporter. And um, I saw a blurb in the hockey news, which I subscribed to, about a team maybe trying to come to Columbus, Ohio in the East Coast Hockey League. And as probably being the only person in the entire paper who knew anything about hockey, I jumped right on it and was able to follow that. And uh, eventually that led to me just becoming full-time in the sports and my beat was the Columbus Chill for the most part. Interesting. And David, you were what the guy who put the ad in the in the new in the hockey news? Maybe. Well, they, well, they found out about it. I'm not sure we had put it out there, but you know, they have those reporters have a way of finding things out. So it yeah, was we're, we're a tricky bunch. We're tricky yeah, you're bunch. a tricky bunch, that's for sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, uh, it it certainly started to make its way out there. But I don't think a lot of people were paying attention uh, to those early stories either, because you know there have been a lot of you know, a lot of teams that come and go in Columbus, uh, not just hockey, but a lot of different, a lot of different franchises. Um, and uh, so it was, uh, you know, another try. I think a lot of people saw that probably saw it initially and saw ho-hum, you know, <laughs> okay, this one will come and how long will it last? So this was, we're talking about the, uh, the East Coast Hockey League, right? Which is, which is a, maybe you could describe for our audience, both of you, uh, where the ECHL, which, what is now known as the ECHL, uh, was sort of uh, set in the, uh, I guess, the hierarchy of minor league and or major league hockey. Yeah, at the time, um, we ended up being the 16th franchise uh, of the East Coast League. In fact, that was going to be the capping point. That was one of the sales points to our owner. Of course, they they blew that up the next time somebody offered uh, expansion money. You know, um, but uh, uh, the league at the time is you know double A level, but I, I think the league was a far cry from where it was at. 
even by the time we got to the uh, the end of our time, which is only uh, eight years uh, with the chill. Uh, and today, I mean, the league is really a great developmental league. But early on, it was a little more Wild West uh, kind of feel. But they had had put in some really good pieces to make uh, to make it work. You know, uh, a certain amount of uh, you know Americans on the roster for that development. Um, you know, salary caps um, only can play. Uh, only a certain amount of players, I think even just one or two, could, could go past three years in, in their professional career. So they really did not want it to become that old uh, senior beer league that would, uh, you know, where, where somebody would just hang around for, for 10 or 12 years. They really wanted to turn the players over. Yeah, and it was, as, it sound, as the name said, it was really sort of the East Coast League to start with at least Eastern U.S. with, uh, you know, Richmond, Norfolk, Virginia, uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Erie, Pennsylvania. And the year before the chill started, Cincinnati came into the league. Uh, then the same year, same season as the chill, you had the Dayton Bombers, Toledo Storm. So at that point, it was really expanding. But really not a lot of people knew about that league. Uh, Columbus has had some previous hockey ventures in the IHL with the Columbus Checkers, the Columbus Golden Seals, and then the Owls, who left Columbus in 1977. So there really was a 14-year gap without pro hockey in Columbus until the chill came in 1991. Okay, so so that's interesting, and, and this sort of leads me into another question. So you're basically saying there was some level of minor league hockey uh, history, shall we say, in Columbus, but somewhat not unlike the, the name of the first uh, franchise, a checkered, pun intended, history uh, yes. that was largely the late 60s and the bulk of the 1970s, but really nothing – since that uh, last Columbus Owls season in 77. Wh- um, why, I guess, a question maybe for both of you, Craig Morris, I guess a fan at the time and then sort of growing into a sports writer and, uh, and, and David Moore from, you know, being part of the, the management that, that ultimately chose Columbus. Why Columbus, uh, given that somewhat uh, shaky and frankly, uh, at the time, maybe 10 plus years absent hockey history. Well, it, it's a great city, first of all. And I think that it, it was <clears throat> the city just to even taking a look. It was only three hours from us in Indianapolis, um, which we were at, I was at before. And I uh, started to look around uh, once the Cleveland situation wasn't going to pan out at cities that fit in the footprint, you know, that were large enough to handle it and so forth and really kept coming back to Columbus. And I'm like, why are there not more teams here? And he really looked at it and, and uh, it was very much facility related. Um, The town itself was, was large enough to handle it. It was a younger, uh, more vibrant community, great, uh, you know, corporate businesses there, huge college uh, with Ohio state plus many other, like the six other small colleges in the area. So from a marketer standpoint, it was in a business standpoint, it looked at that and said that that's, that's gotta be right for an opportunity. There were two things to overcome though. One was, uh, you know, breaking through whatsoever uh, in the shadow of Ohio state, which was, was vast, you know, it's a very, you know, that's a, that's a very big thing to get by because of the media attention that they, they pull. So you had to find your way to, to squeeze into that. And, and the other was facilities, which uh, were not, uh, you know, there were, were not great choices. There's really only two. We looked downtown initially, uh, was pretty quick to decide that wasn't going to work. There was a small, um, small arena, but really meant more for basketball than it was hockey uh, attached to the convention center. And then um, 
the Fairgrounds Coliseum, which uh, I think Craig can describe well, uh, really uh, had seen its day for the most part, uh, built in 1917. I think it was the oldest uh, uh, existing hockey uh, venue in uh, the United States. That's what we were to do. It was a true barn, and it was on the Fairgrounds Coliseum, and it was used for horse shows and everything, so actually it was a true barn. Um, but, you know, Tim, you go back to why Columbus or why not Columbus for all those years. I think by the early 90s, especially by 91 or so, uh, Columbus was changing it. The demographics, yes, Ohio State was big and major, but people were coming to Columbus. It was a growing city, and there were people in town who did not have an allegiance to Ohio State. You know, and some of them were hockey fans, and they were probably following the Pittsburgh Penguins or the Detroit Red Wings if they had come to Columbus from the region. So there was a growing interest. Ohio State had a hockey team that played at a, the OSU Ice Rink, which seated about 1,200 people and was built in 1964. So that was, you know, outdated and, and not very useful at all. But there was a little bit of core of people who wanted hockey and wanted something different than Ohio State. Not that they didn't like Ohio State, maybe, but they wanted something different, especially for the winter months. Well, Craig, give me, give me a sense before we sort of delve more deeply into this chill story. Uh, maybe also a little bit of a halo of uh, Columbus as a quote-unquote professional sports town, right? Not a whole lot aside yeah. from that minor league thing. Obviously, uh, the old American soccer league, the Columbus Magic, uh, the Columbus Clippers, of course, uh, in minor league baseball. Uh, but uh, really, I guess, uh, and the, the hockey franchises that you're mentioning, was there really much else in the way of, if you will, pro sports uh, to act as, a, as even a, a small barometer of potential success? Well, they, they had the Columbus Horizon of the uh, Continental Basketball Association, the CBA, who were actually in town right. when, and, and, and shared the Coliseum the first year with the Chill. So they were in town. Hey, I'm surprised you remember the Magic. Uh, that was great. Um, you know, they played out where the Clippers played on uh, Franklin County Stadium or Cooper Stadium, as it was known later. But other than that, there was a, a professional softball league, the Columbus All-Americans, a guy named Norm Cash, if you remember from the Detroit Tigers. Certainly, yes. Yeah, that is absolutely something we want to go into at some point in another episode, that league, yeah. for sure, for a lot of yeah. reasons. So, you know, there were a lot, a lot of failed franchises, a couple other basketball teams, uh, the Columbus Minx, and there were some soccer teams that failed as well, some football teams, yeah. pro football teams that failed. So, what, wait, did uh, they, was the Ohio Glory of the World League of American Football? Weren't they Columbus based too? Yes, that was. Uh, yeah, what was that like? Ninety three, ninety four days. Correct. Day, so that day, was just day, around this time. Early on, yeah. Got it. Yeah. This, 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 this was certainly before. Okay, got it. Uh, but but yeah. okay. Well, that that so I didn't mean to interrupt, but that that leads me kind of maybe, and maybe David, you could sort of underline here. Sure. So as you're circling around. Uh, potential places to mm-hmm. uh, relocate or, or, or flag plant on behalf of, uh, of Horn Chen, which I want to get to the part of that story in a second. It seems to me, and, 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 and Craig is sort of hinting at it, that Columbus is really kind of, you know, proving its worth, I guess, demographically and psychographically and geographically uh, for some fertile and now much more, shall we say, robust uh, pro sports stuff, right? I, I made the illusion of the World League of American Football, but you know, in the background is this uh, soon to to domicile Major League Soccer in '96 too. So it seems to me like you were kind of maybe starting to sort of circle around this metropolitan area that wasn't necessarily you. You weren't the only ones maybe thinking about this market. No, I don't, yeah, exactly right. Um, but they all had failed, you know. So when you when you look at it, we we it was still a calculated risk because. Uh, 
you, you look at you know three hockey teams that had come and gone uh, and many others, nobody had really broken through. So the city, you could tell, uh, you know, there was something there, but folks were having a tough time figuring out how to tap into it and make and sustain it. And, um, you know, so we knew, I mean, it was not lost on us that we could come in and be the next failure. It was, it was certainly a very strong possibility. And we were motivated very much early on uh, by a fear of failure, you know, and uh, we, we, we rolled up our sleeves and worked pretty hard and, and try to find our angles to get to uh, the people that could help us, uh, you know, promote the team. And once we, uh, you know, found a, a few of those formulas working, it, uh, you know, we just, uh, you know, just caught fire a bit, you know. But, uh, you know, there was no, there was no guarantee it was going to fly. Tell, tell me about this. Tell me about this Horn Chen, Horn Chen guy, um, who ironically uh, 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 lived in a town literally just next door to me, where I live in the northern suburbs of, uh, of Chicago. But the not only him, but but what was his background in all of this, as well as perhaps you can sort of end with this: is why were you looking at Cleveland in the first place, and and why wouldn't that also bring Agita, given Cleveland's checkered history yeah. hockey, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, Horn, just quick background on him: Chicago businessman uh, was the second biggest importer of bamboo in the uh, in the United States. Uh, had uh, a downtown uh, office building in Chicago on the uh, Miracle Mile there and had uh, a number of uh, uh, Chinese restaurants uh, in Chicago as well as uh, Slugger Sports Bar, uh, which uh, uh, the, the, had several locations, for that, but the main one is right across from Wrigley Field. So, you know, it's one of the institutions for, you know, Cub baseball fans. Um, he, uh, his son, uh, Chris, uh, played hockey and they went down to, you know, he kind of traveled for that and went down to Indianapolis. And that's what got him initially interested. Uh, and he got himself involved in the purchase of what became the Indianapolis Ice. Uh, and I, I was part of that uh, start uh, there as well. And uh, Horn had, uh, uh, we had success there and he started to get into the minor league uh, sports uh, purchasing. In fact, he thought the wave, I mean, he saw something because he thought the wave for minor league hockey was, was coming for whatever reason. And uh, he thought it was a good, it was a good investment. And he loved, he loved hockey and loved sports. He was a Blackhawks season seat holder and Cubs season seat holder. Uh, and, you know, I got to use his seventh row seats of the Cubs a few times. That was kind of nice. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, but really a businessman first more than anything. And why Cleveland? Oh, Cleveland. Yeah. Well, that, that was kind of set initially when, when the horn offered me the opportunity, uh, that was the designation. It was, we're going to go to Cleveland, Cleveland, obviously a really good hockey city as well, but we went and that was, uh, uh, pretty evident quickly uh, that his thought was we were going to go to the, uh, Cleveland state university new arena, which was, you know, just being built at the time, uh, only, you know, missing, kind of a key ingredient. It didn't have ice, you know, and uh, also they didn't have uh, a GM at the time or, and you, we were moving on a tight, uh, fast time frame. So to have both of those things kind of fall together and kind of work through the, the politics that, that are involved in um, the collegiate scene, which is a lot slower uh, than the rest of the world, there was just not enough time and we had no deal and there was no, no way we were going down to gun. It was just going to be way priced uh, way out of what we could do. 
So he said, start looking at options. So we did, and I ended up recommending Columbus. That's interesting. I suspect that the Cleveland crunch of the uh, fl- then-fledgling NPSL uh, indoor soccer was also part of the mix there at the CSU. Uh, yeah, I recall that they were, and I think that was pretty popular in Cleveland at that point in time. Interesting. So, so Craig, the, the, give me a sense then of, of when did you sort of – do you remember when you saw this ad in the hockey news or this uh, piece in the hockey news that, that hinted or, or more than that, uh, that uh, this club was coming, it's coming your way? Yeah, I think it was probably uh, either April or early May of, of 91. And uh, again, saw that blurb and made a few phone calls. Somehow, I don't know exactly how David and I connected, but I remember I think our first meeting was that he was in town searching out sites and locations for office. And everything. I think we met at a hotel up in northern Columbus and, and you know, a clandestine operation there. And we met each other for the first time and he discussed uh, what was going on and what his plans were. So I would say that was in early, maybe late May or early June at that point that you could tell that he had something going on that uh, you know, there was going to be hockey pretty soon in Columbus again. Yeah, and I had this. Craig kind of kept his skeptical eye through the whole conversation, but he did, but I, he did listen. I think we, 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 he started to think something might be, you might have a, an opportunity. I think we had at least a, a framework of a plan, so. So, okay, so what was, what was the beginnings of the plan, right? So aside from all the things that any hockey team needs, which is players, coaches, facility, uh, there's also marketing and breaking through and, and introducing to the marketplace what this thing, this entity, these players, the zeitgeist is going to be. Sort of walk us through this because it, it quickly became a phenomenon, and obviously it wasn't by accident, was it? Right. Well, I think uh, a, lot, a lot of different things. First of all, it was um, I had just three of us to start with, myself, Alan Karpik, who was my right hand, um, and Larry Lane, who interned with me in Indianapolis. Uh, we went, uh, we were first on board and we started to kind of investigate uh, the city and I put these guys on different assignments. And one of the things uh, we wanted to do was kind of see who could be sponsors out there. We went and looked at who was sponsoring Ohio State and the Clippers and other things in town. So we spent some time on those sort of issues. We started to develop our, you know, brand look and the name and what the uniform is going to look like, um, you know, the hiring the coach, getting the right kind of uh, right person there, which we did, I think, with Terry Raskowski. Uh, and uh, then how were we going to go about, uh, you know, putting this together and promoting it? And we always knew, because this this comes a little out of the Beck tradition, and again, Ray Compton, who was a mentor for me in Indianapolis, you know, promoting, you know, constantly promoting, constantly telling the story, uh, you know, tying that bit back to the sales side with, you know, tickets and so on. And, um you know, we, we wanted to intrigue people, you know, we wanted to make sure that our event would be fun. Uh, and we wanted to make a bit of a splash the best we could. And, you know, so we started to pull those things uh, together, those ideas. We had run that drill in Indianapolis uh, to a degree, you know, I had spent six years prior to my time with the ice with the, with the Pacers. So we had you know, background in both PR and marketing. So we, you know, it was time for us to, you know, uh, give, give one a try here. And, so uh, we started to roll that out. We, we ended up stepping it up a notch and went a little stronger on the advertising and promotion than we thought, we thought we would initially. And again, that was born out of fear of failure at the time and, uh, and triggered by, and it's Craig can speak to this, the Robert Smith uh, incident of him leaving the Ohio State football team 
right in the middle of camp. And when that's the stir that caused, that's one of the things that got me very nervous uh, that we would ever be seen. Right, Craig? Yeah, and that was a Robert Smith star running back for High State uh, decided he wasn't going to play football that year because of High State wasn't stretching academics and he had personal conflicts with one of the coaches. So, you know, that's the lead story on the news. Not the lead sports story. That's the lead story on the news for days and days at the 6 o'clock news and then and in the newspaper. And David's right. He probably was wondering, how can we break through this? A high state is so dominant in the area, especially a high state football. We've got to do something radical, being the chill. And so that's where they uh, went into a different direction. Yeah, so we were, you know, we were doomed otherwise, I think. I really do. So uh, we had worked with an agency in, in Indianapolis, and I had the same folks kind of uh, helping us out a bit, trying to get the brand and all that together. And I went back to our guy that I'd worked with for a couple of years, and I said, listen, we need to, have, we, we need to hit people between the eyes here, um, because if we don't do that, uh, it's going to be game over. We, we, we cannot, uh, we, we have to have great first impression. We've got to come out, and we've got to find that audience that will gravitate to this. Um, and he did. He came back to me with some headlines later. They were very edgy. I said, and these were for print ads uh, initially, but the radio and things would follow that too. And I, and I said, Mark, I said, that, that's, those are fantastic, but I'm cringing. You know, you're making me nervous. I said, uh, why don't we, uh, I like the idea, but we got to make sure that uh, in the subtext that people understand that this is, this is a bit of a joke, okay? And that, uh, uh, you know, that, that um, you know, that we're kidding and, that, you know, that we're, we're actually poking fun at the stereotypes that people that don't know the game have of the game. So that's, that's the direction we took. Let's go, chill! Clear it! Clear it out! Clear it! Who's out? That was a nice stick and run! Columbus Chill. Scream till your brain hurts. You're, you're basically marketing, if you will. Not only a new team in a new league, but frankly, the sport, if you will, that's been largely absent from the Columbus uh, marketplace. And so it's kind of like a double, almost triple whammy when it comes to marketing, right? So in some respects, it's probably the hardest challenge you could ever have because you have to create uh, awareness for your brand. Uh, the uh, the product and just the newness of all of it to break through, but also maybe arguably the converse is is true. You kind of, I mean, you did, but you kind of, from a marketing perspective, didn't have anything to lose because you had nothing really to compare it against. And arguably, when it came to sports, there's really nothing in the winter time aside maybe for some, you know, indoor OSU games of sorts, right? Um, you, you really kind of had the professional if you will, sports realm all to yourselves. Yeah, I think it, it definitely was a, a moment of nothing uh, nothing to lose. Uh, so again, we kind of went for broke with it. But it, we also knew it was, it was all really strategic as well because we weren't just going to roll out and do the in-your-face push uh, to the larger market. One, we couldn't afford to, to buy you know, ads and that, that kind of level. Uh, so we, we did more of what uh, would, you know, more of a grassroots approach. And we, we selected specific media we thought would be very, very friendly to this. Radio morning shows, uh, certain alternative newspapers, the Ohio State uh, newspapers at the time was printing like 
35,000 copies a daily. It was like the fourth biggest daily in the state. And so we were uh, doing those things very much like a groundswell you would get with social media today, you know, but uh, so it was almost, uh, you know, those groups uh, who, we, who were really appealing to the uh, consumer more than even the hockey fan in their 20s and, and maybe early, in, in early to mid 30s. People that were going out, having fun on a Friday, Thursday or Friday night, you know, hitting the bar scene, whatever. That's the crowd we were going for, plus the student body at Ohio State. And um, we, uh, the Ohio State, you know, uh, students who I, I think many times, uh, we, we were told many times, you, you can't get them, they don't respond to anything. They came out in droves. And that really uh, did a ton for us. Uh, you know, we probably averaged somewhere between seven and 15,000 a night uh, from the colleges, not just Ohio State, but primarily Ohio State. And that just put uh, electricity in the building that, uh, that was, again, part of making who we were. Um, is some of that also the, the changing maybe demographics of, of the city as well? Because it's clear too that the around that time you're you're sort of just starting to see, uh, you know, the city becoming uh, more of a center for corporate, uh, uh, you know, entities as well, right? And and young professionals, I guess. Well, that's what really. we saw from the outside. But you know, Craig can speak to that even better. But that I, I saw average age of community. I saw young. I saw some affluent and uh, I thought, I thought this, you know, what, why isn't anybody here again? I go back, this compares very similarly to Indianapolis, only you have, you're dropping in Ohio State, a side school, of a school right in the middle of the city. This, you know, if, if you have the right set of circumstances, this is going to work. Yeah, Columbus is growing and, and having more entertainment options, you know, amphitheaters, uh, concert halls, things like that were being built. And so, there was a reason for people who graduated from a high state or the other college to stay in Columbus, which gave you a much younger uh, you know, demographic. And so I think the chill was able to tap in that. The other thing, Tim, is, you know, I grew up being a hockey fan since I was 10 years old or so. And so I hate to say this, but the big thing for hockey back in those days was the fights, you know, the rough, tough and tumble. It's nothing like it is today, but you know, the chill played into that and played into that stereotype, but they also had a pretty mean team on the ice. And that's really how a lot of the minor league teams, especially down south, you know, get that NASCAR on ice was the slogan for a lot of those franchises early on. And the chill was able to tap into that as well. Some of it was backed into. I, I, I'm not sure we just went out to design a team with nine fighters in it initially, <laughs> but we got started so late. Uh, it's kind of what we ended up being. And, uh, and certainly that played right into uh, the stereotype and right into the headlines that were written. And again, uh, the, uh, the, the hardcore fans that had been around hockey uh, that were still around loved it. And uh, I think college students just, you know, it's just action. It was cool, you know. And uh, so, so it was a good formula. Well, all right. So how much, how much of your initial splash uh, and, and uh, launch into the market was sort of this ECHL kind of brand of hockey, right, which is mm-hmm. pretty rough and tumble? And how much of it was uh, your own unique spin on things, uh, either specific to the market or the demographics or, frankly, just the creativity uh, that you – because, I mean, you, you came out like gangbusters. I mean, you guys sold out, like, you know, dozens of games in a row. And, and, and like, I'm just really curious as to, like, what specifically was driving these young adults, yeah. if you will, into, well, the, into the barn? 
Yeah, I think uh, curiosity uh, first. I mean, I'll go, I'll date all the way back to the initial press conference. That's one of the things that Larry Allen and I worked on pretty heavily. I said, we're going to invite the whole town to the press conference. We're just not going to have a, a small announcement. So we ended up doing it. Uh, Craig will help me out on where. Um, I think Damon's, name. Damon's Clubhouse. Damon's Clubhouse. Okay, so a restaurant. A restaurant. Yeah, two o'clock in the afternoon where it would normally be empty. And we invited agency people, we invited everybody in the media, um, uh, you know, potential sponsors, all of those folks, and we packed the room. There were probably 150 people at a minimum in that room for that initial press conference. So the first impression, I think every media camera and every media reporter that was there was like, oh my God, what is going on here? We had no idea this was, you know, why, why, we better pay a little bit more of attention, which they did for about 10 minutes, and then they went back to Ohio State, and then we had to keep hammering away. We had to keep you know, coming back and hammering away in different ways. But it was that, um, it was a little bit of that uh, edge, you know, that really worked for us. And it was an attitude, it was fun, uh, you know, and we were going to, you know, have something that was going to be a little bit different. Again, I go back to the Beck style. We're going to, you know, you're, you're there for the show as much as you are the game. And, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, and and the and and the East Coast League, you know, was 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 going well. Hockey was on an upswing. Columbus was changing, so I just think it all kind of came together. Timing is a lot of it. How about the game experience and uh, and the uniforms? I, I I've seen some of the old uniforms. I mean, you you guys looked like you took a few chances and then some on uh, specific uh, unique day of game situations as well as just the overall uh, you know regular jersey sort of uh, setup. Yeah, it took us the second year to get into the jersey referencing because, you know, that with the lead time on creating what we did, uh, we ended up picking up, I think, the uh, L.A. Uh, LA um, uh, Kings uh, in black and silver at the time. And we did the same in Indianapolis, so we we're just kind of carrying that over. But we, again, and that, and that idea of trying to look different, uh, we went back to the agency and said, give us something that is unique. And and our and our folks came back with that essentially icicle look uh, that kind of runs uh, kind of at an angle, and I said that okay, that's nobody's got that. So uh, that became again a big part of what our brand became, and again that fed right into that unique and different kind of uh, thinking. Well, you forgot the chill, the chill running from the bottom up on the side, David. Well, that's true too. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> that's what that's why we do these interviews together, Greg. <laughs> Well, Craig, what, what what was your sort of sense of like you're covering this team, right? So, I mean, when did how did you become less jaded, I guess, and when did you when did you sort of maybe I don't know convert, I guess, not to say we be a fan per se, but that yeah. that this was going to be something of significance and stick around and stuff because clearly, if fans are coming out, their buzz is out there, right? You're going to get more chances to cover this team, and. Um, you know, there's probably more of a sensation than maybe even you were thinking of. Yeah, it was. And, you know, I grew up in Columbus. I'd been to the uh, Seals and Owls games, never was old enough to get to a Checkers game. So uh, when, the, when the Owls left in 77, I was a senior in high school. And it's like, and I was thinking about going into journalism. And one of the things I remembered saying to myself was, you know, if I have a chance to help the hockey team or save hockey in Columbus and do something for hockey in Columbus, I would love to do it. Now, that doesn't mean being, you know, being blind to it. You've got to be a journalist. And you've got to be able to be unbiased about what you're covering. But I was rooting for the chill to make it, to be honest, because it was good for Columbus. I thought it would be a good thing for the city to have. So you know, early on, I put as much as I could into covering the team as, as well as I could. I took vacation time to go over to Indianapolis 
for the, uh, the training camp. Um, so the dispatch wouldn't have to pay for it. Um, you know, first season, I also took some vacation time and went on a road with the team to cover them because the team was building up the interest. Like you said, the sellout streak was starting. Amazing coverage they were getting. And so I was able to do that. Um, when did I really think they had made it? Uh, I don't know. Probably maybe when they were featured in the Wall Street Journal, you know, just two months after the first home game on December 31st, 1991. And there was a big story in the Wall Street Journal about the chill and the success they were having. I think that opened up my eyes and everybody's eyes. Said, hey, this is something different. Yeah, and that got followed by uh, ABC World News came in like two weeks after that story. And, uh, and they did like a, a four-minute feature on a, a World News Sunday. And uh, it, it just, it, again, that, that was that undertone of credibility, you know, again, that, was, that, that went through the market. And trust me, we took that videotape and that clip around everybody we saw in town every time we went on a, on a sales pitch talking about sponsorships or talking about the sport in the media. We play that over and over again. And, and when you see Ray Gandalf uh, introducing your, uh, you know, a, a four-minute minor league segment uh, at the end of a uh, Sunday night national broadcast, it, uh, <laughs> it makes a statement. Okay, what's this? Ah, yes, the new book by Diane Shaw. I am happy and ecstatic to recommend it. It's called A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps. Who is Diane Shaw, you may ask, and what's it about? Well, Diane Shaw is a, uh, a writer of mystery novels and biographies and other, other great works. But before that, uh, you may have known her in the 1960s and 1970s as the pioneering female sports journalist that kind of broke through the barriers, the glass ceilings, if you will. Uh, becoming really the first uh, major national newspaper sports columnist who happened to be female at the uh, Los Angeles Herald Examiner, for, uh, for that matter. And uh, it, her book uh, is just it's just chock full of great anecdotes. It's a memoir of all of her trials and travails, shall we say, uh, in trying to cover sports in this country as a woman. You know, back in the 60s and 70s, you young whippersnappers, you have no idea how challenging it was. And there's a whole generation and then some of female sports reporters and columnists and writers and, and on-air personalities who can uh, owe their careers uh, to the doors that uh, she uh, just uh, plowed through uh, back, uh, back in the day. And uh, some great stories and some great uh, anecdotes. And, and one that we especially love uh, features a certain United States president uh, and uh, some interesting times when he was uh, running a team and then trying to bulldoze his way through uh, the old USFL, the New Jersey Generals in particular. Uh, I'm not going to repeat the story here. It's well worth <laughs> the price of admission in this book alone. And uh, we uh, highly encourage you uh, to check it out wherever fine books are found. It's called A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps. It is published by the Indiana University Press and their imprint, Red Lightning Books. And we thank both of them uh, for uh, offering our listeners a, an exclusive free chapter download uh, right now. You just, all you have to do is visit this little uh, website and I'll repeat it again, because it's a little clunky. Uh, and you're gonna get a free special uh, sneak peek, free chapter of the book, A Farewell to Arms, Legs and Jockstraps. Just go to this website, iupress.org slash jockstraps dash good seats. That's iupress.org. It's I, the letter I, the letter U, press, iupress.org slash 
jockstraps, one word, dash good seats, one word. And again, you're going to get a free special sneak peek, a free chapter download of the brand new book by Diane Shaw, A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps. Uh, if you don't remember that uh, URL, we'll have a link to it on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com uh, off of this episode. And um, you will enjoy this book. I guarantee it. And I appreciate the friends, our friends, our new friends at Red Lightning Books and Indiana, Indiana University Press, hard to say, uh, for their sponsorship and uh, bringing our attention uh, to this great book by Dan- Diane Shaw. He says, a farewell to arms, legs, and jockstraps. Uh, I know you'll enjoy the free sample, and I know you'll enjoy the book. Try it out, and uh, as they say, you'll be glad you did. All right, back to our uh, conversation. Here it comes. What was it that was drawing that that national attention? I mean, I, for example, I've got to think, if you remember, I'm sure you probably vividly remember, some of the uh, the more incredible sort of in-game activities like do I have this right? You frozen chickens during the first game? Yes. Does that ring a bell? What, what, tell our audience what that was all about and what that it was. was. It was a contest to shoot uh, frozen Cornish game hens, actually, to uh, win fabulous prizes. We had a $5,000 cash prize, which is another thing, again, you don't do. You don't even do that today. And we, uh, we offered $5,000 in cash. So we're, we did that. We built a whole ad, radio ad around it. And again, it was... It, it was all about tone setting and saying there's going to be more to this than hockey. There's going to be, you're, you're going to see a show and this is going to be different. And, um, it, uh, yeah. So it, <laughs> that, that one people remember, it just, uh, kind of, kind of stuck as, as something being a little bit different. So how, I mean, were you marketing these games essentially as you never know what's going to happen? I mean, Oh yeah. The, by the way, there'll be some hockey, but more of, uh, just kind of just, Sounds like zany fun yes. uh, under the roof of the old barn and, you know, maybe, maybe some quality hockey will sort of result in, in the meantime. Yeah, I, I think we, we figured uh, hockey fans were going to want to be there. You know, what, whatever base of hockey fans, they were going to come because it was a good product. Uh, and, it, and it only improved as the years went on. I mean, it really was. And we had really good coaches. Uh, we had some some people emerge out of that that ended up being NHL players and a, and a lot of people doing really well in the game outside of that. Uh, but no, we were we were yeah we were selling the show. It was a sideshow circus act, uh, to be honest with you, in a lot of ways. He has four massive bodyguards, and every night he must run the gauntlet. When he appears, six thousand screaming fans rise to their feet. Their fates rest on the strength of his right arm. He's the pizza man. And he don't do anchovies. The Columbus Chill. You've got to be there. Once we got that going, it was almost like we had this small team of people, um, and and we were all in relatively the same age range, so we would... Uh, you know, we would literally, you know, uh, have an idea and kick it around. Sometimes that was post game over beers at a place called Roosters in German Village. You know, and we just have fun and laugh, and then say, okay, why don't we, why don't we actually do that? <laughs> you know, and the next thing it was drawn up on the board, and uh, and we'd be shooting frozen chickens or uh, you know whatever else, uh, you know whatever the creation of the day was. You know, it's really you remember that group that David talked about his his staff there. Uh, they were big David Letterman fans. And so his zany, irreverent um, approach was probably 
one of the guiding forces for the, uh, the entire chill front office. Yeah, I am from Indiana, so he had to live David Letterman. So I was just kind of, you know, required that and the Vec reading again. You know, I made everybody read Vec as in Rack. So it just, again, everything was, people were on the same page and they were, and they also matched the audience. Our staff was like ages 22, right out of college, up to 31 in that first year. Um, that was our, so our office, really, uh, our office staff really mirrored and could really relate to what was going on, including what was going on on things like the music scene. You know, we had at the time, we really had that Seattle grunge scene uh, starting to break loose. And, and we were right on the front of all that, throwing all that stuff into our game, uh, our game presentation. And that, again, that resonated huge with, with the college fans and, and, and the audience we were looking for. Were you guys surprised at how quickly uh, your target audience took to the team and, and, and buying tickets for the games and, and, and selling out, you know, 5,600 uh, seats at the, at the Fairgrounds Expo Coliseum? Um, yeah. Did you think it was going to take a little longer? And, and it, it feels to me like, I mean, if, if national media was sort of on your case already two months after launch, I got to think that was ahead of schedule. Yeah, everything was ahead of schedule. No, we, again, I, I, I'm, I'm not kidding when I say in August when this Robert Smith leaving the football team story broke, I, I was, I was, you know, I'm very, I, I distraught. There's no way we're going to break through, you know? And uh, so, yes, everything, everything was ahead of schedule and you have to have some luck and, and a little bit of fluke. And that Wall Street Journal story actually came because they were scouring different things around the country and came across something Craig wrote, right, Craig? Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah, they interviewed me for it. My, my highlight of my entire career was being uh, called Mr. Murs in the uh, Wall Street Journal. So, yeah, it's all, been all downhill since then. <laughs> but, you know, they were looking for something different. You know, apparently of that day, they were looking for something a little bit different, and they, they found that and then decided to write about it and, uh, you know, uh, that hits the Wall Street Journal, that was a big deal. Yeah, but it, it didn't end there. It just kind of kept going on and on. Uh, again, national play, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, it was the uh, the talk of the town, you know, and fun. You know, just always had, had a great impression. We had our guys uh, constantly in the morning radio shows, and they were they became, you know, practically part of the morning show routine at the morning zoo. Um, you know, they were just an extension of it. They, we'd, we'd have them in there basically every homestand and uh, giggling it up with the with, with the morning show host, and they, they became beloved. I mean, the, the fans really took uh, to to this team too. I mean, it was not uh, they they loved these guys, and uh, uh, you know, they were two steps below, right? Uh, uh, and, and I'm not sure we had anybody off of those early teams that 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 went a lot farther than that. Uh, but they worked hard. They, 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 you know, they were out there for real, you know, but uh, they, they ate up the fan experience and, and Columbus, uh, you know, Columbus was, Columbus was a sports town to be had. It just was, it just, you know, uh, it, it just, nobody had really kind of figured out how other than the Clippers, you know, the Clippers were successful for forever, you know, but they filled that nice summer niche between seasons. Um, but um, so many others kind of came and went, and uh, but it, the appetite was there. It was it was there. You just had to figure out a way to un unlock it. And Tim, I think a, a key point has to be made about you know that national attention so quickly. For our young listeners to your podcast, there was no social media. I mean, there, to have that within two months was remarkable because there was no 
instant, put it on, tw- you know, the Cornish hens. That would have been on Twitter within 20 seconds and seen thousands of views. It would have been on Sports Center immediately that night as one of the top 10 plays probably or something. There was no social media, no Facebook, anything at that point. It was all water mouth or, you know, my articles, other people's articles, TV stations. And that yeah. word just spread nationally just like that. But and we the other thing was there was unbelievable timing. And David can address this for the second Friday night. The first Friday night was the first home game on November 1st, sellout. The next Friday night, David can go into how Magic Johnson played into this entire thing. Yeah, we had we had tried to set up, um, you know, we had five Friday nights in that November because we landed on the 1st, was the first November day. And we wanted to come up with a big promotion. So we did, you know, was, well, the Laker girls, bring the Laker girls in. I uh, was able to figure out how to do, get that to happen. And they hadn't done national appearances at that time. So we got them in. Um, and uh, the day before, um, the day before, I'm literally on my way to the airport, just about to leave to go pick up two. We got two in early for PR sake. And then the rest of the team would come on the Friday and then, then be part of the, the event. And uh, that was the afternoon that Magic Johnson announced that he had HIV. Um, so I had Brent, our PR person, all week begging the media to take, uh, to take uh, you, know, you know, do something with these two girls that we brought in early. Uh, you know, just get any, any camera time we could to advance the game to help us. Because, you know, another, an opening night sellout, you know, that's one thing. But to kind of get that momentum going, you need to come come right back. Well, that story went, you know, so huge instantly, obviously, across the world that, you know, this, the, the girls that we couldn't get, uh, uh, you know, them to take, now that now they were, the, they had to have them. And, and they, and I talked to them, I picked them up myself and, and, and we'd heard, you know, the announcement had just happened. I said, uh, you know, do you want to, you know, do any appearances tonight or, you know, you need to kind of regroup, not really having known what happened. So they said, you know, that we don't uh, want to. And I said, that's fine. We'll just pick up tomorrow's appearances. And we had, uh, again, just an onslaught of the media. Uh, is it Bob Orr, Greg? Yeah, Bob Orr. Yeah, he was the one that was pestering uh, Brent uh, the most, and uh, but they all wanted it, and and we wouldn't give it to him. So it's it's again now all of a sudden we had that feeling like okay we're at we're at the 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 hot club and you can't get in, <laughs> you know. And even though it was a obviously a, a terribly tragic story at that moment, and everybody uh, assumed uh, the worst, uh, you know, obviously that that uh, you know Magic Johnson continued on just fine. But uh, at the time, that certainly was just frightening for everyone. Uh, but. But that again, that draw drew more attention to the team, and we just had you know kind of one thing after another like that going on early on. So we had we had kind of built-in uh, PR <laughs> for whatever uh, reason, and uh, you know again a little bit a little bit of timing, a little bit of luck or whatever you want to call it. Um, but uh, and then the crowds you know came. We played first. We played five Friday nights, and we sold all five. Uh, five Friday nights out in November and we won out all five games and I think we were maybe like five and ten you know but we won the games that mattered and uh, uh, so again everything kind of affects everything else and uh, that was uh, that was a great uh, great way to get started even though it was very very stressful and crazy. It sounds to me like the the fairgrounds arena 
the, the Coliseum, uh, I don't know what the official title was, but the fairgrounds, the facility, right, was in some respects the best of situations, given it was relatively small in terms of number of seats. Uh, it was, to your point, uh, almost uh, capacity controlled or constrained to make it sort of hard, maybe, or a tough ticket to get, especially you were starting off so hot, but also, as maybe you want to maybe allude to, kind of the worst of situations. Uh, number one being it's arguably, I guess maybe it was even at the time, the literally oldest building to house a professional indoor uh, sports franchise of, of, yeah. of sports. But uh, there was also a, some drama in your second season regarding well, the facility in, even, too, right? Even in the first, even the first game. In fact, uh, the uh, chill beat writer for the, the paper was holding the front page because the first game was almost a disaster. Um, and Yes, I was. We weren't set up for ice, and we were not. Uh, you know, we uh, we were using a portable system of piping matched with an old system that had been fired up for years, and we almost didn't play. Uh, it's actually one of the great chapters in the book because you read it that and you say that is that is how not to go about it. Uh, but we <laughs> we ended up managing to to hold it together and uh, pulled off the game and the sellout crowd and people climbing on this flimsy glass at the end of the night to high five players. It was an incredible picture. But you know, Craig can look at it from the other point of view because obviously he was he was seeing uh, you know, gosh, you know, as he said, I'm kind of pulling for this thing to happen. I'm going to write a front page story how it was it couldn't even get off the ground. It would have been better if it was a disaster. But David, um, congratulations, you survived the night. <laughs> <laughs> but but Tim, anyway, yeah, you, know, you talked about the Coliseum. Uh, they had to play four home games that first season on the road just because of scheduling with uh, the CBA team at the time for that one season and then high school basketball tournaments. And then over the summer, uh, David can talk more about it, but the Chill basically lost you know a ton of home dates because of a scheduling snafu that really was the impetus to starting a Arena Sports Commission, which eventually led to the Columbus Blue Jackets in the NHL. Well, well, yeah. So before you get there, what was what was the what were the the uh, the acute snafus that were especially in 90, your second season that were like was it you didn't get the dates early enough? Whether was were there preclusions or yeah? Well, no, we had uh, we had the dates. Um, well, we initially had, we did not get good dates. We went back to the, the fairgrounds and said, we just, you know, we just have to do better than this. And their fair manager at the time, I'm going to let Craig talk all about him. Um, uh, he, uh, we, we made a deal. And then, and then that deal got backed out on. Um, he got kind of ousted. And all of a sudden we were, um, we, they had three events scheduled in two buildings um, over the same time period. And we were going to be out. And uh, that, that we, again, we spun that. Uh, we, we took that and made that from, again, a what would have been a complete disaster. And I don't know how we would have, you know, if we had to take all of February and March out, off your home schedule, I don't know, we couldn't be going around the state like that all the time. It just wouldn't work. Um, but we turned that because we, 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 had the, we had the fans on our side and we took it and we, and we were again very deliberate, very calculated, and not something I would have done before or since. But we were going to hold our fire, and 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 we knew this guy was going to go up in flames. And when he did, we were going to pound the media with it and have our and turn our fan base loose on him. And that's that's uh, that's what that's what got the entire conversation started. But I'll 
I'll let Craig fill in the rest. Well, well, you know, Billy Inman was at the fair manager at the time, and he was famous for, uh, well, saying that the state fair was the largest in the country, you know, with 3 million visitors. Uh, when you do an audit, and it's really, you know, 900,000 or so. Uh, that sort of told you uh, where his head was at the time. And so he, he had once held a hunger strike when he was running for governor of the state of Ohio. And basically, uh, yeah, he was a, a piece of work, to put it mildly. Yeah. But he was, he, he was um, you know, not, he was kind of falling apart in front of people's eyes as far as, uh, he, you know, thought, thought he might be ousted. And again, we kind of saw that coming. We got a letter together, basically, um, which I didn't, you know, didn't reveal to anybody besides, you know, Alan, Larry, Lane, and myself knew what we were doing um, until we put it in the book. Uh, but we asked the league for help. Pat Kelly says, how can I help? He says, well, I need, need you to write, I need you to like, write a letter threatening our franchise. And, uh, and then we're going to get that out to the media. Okay. And uh, so he says, okay, says, what do I write? And I says, don't worry, we'll write it for you. So we wrote him a letter and he sent it out. We waited for him in the fall and we, we, we put the, we put that information out there at the same moment, even before that, the night before we dropped out letters uh, to every one of our season seat holders saying, this is what you need to do. Uh, call every media outlet, call the paper, call the TV stations. Uh, if you want hockey to stay here. Was the horizon of the CBA sort of experiencing the same thing or was it sort of a, a different vibe? Yeah, they moved on between the first and the second to that downtown location we talked about. Ah, uh, right. Yeah, so they had, they had really, I think even in that, somewhere in that first season, they already made that decision to move downtown. Got it. Well, that seems like that your back is against the wall for whatever crazy and odd reasons, right? It almost became almost your defining moment, right? To almost guaranteeing you some level of, of longer term success, given the fans that, that you could rally. Well, across. What, it, what it did. Yeah. I mean, it, but one, we won the battle, uh, but it, but it linked in so many people uh, on the political side that mattered. We had uh, the mayor called me, uh, Mayor Lashutka uh, called me like right away and said, what can I do to help? And we talked and, and, uh, you know, he was, he was helpful in brokering, um, but brokering, it was a Columbus dispatch boat and travel show, which is, was a huge event. Um, and then a, then a kind of a regional gymnastics uh, competition of some sort um, that had to make adjustments um, and it got done. Um, but Craig can tell you the rest too. I mean, uh, what uh, sprung from that was almost instant in terms of besides getting the problem solved, uh, you know, we had we had the mayor on our on our side, and they and he came out. Uh, what was it, Craig? Six days. Yeah, about six days. Six days after we kind of launched it, he says we need to do we need to do something about facilities in this town. And uh, Craig, you want to add to that? Oh yeah, and then that's uh, where Mayor Lasheka got together with some of the civic folks and decided to have a you know a task force, a sports arena task force, and try to decide why a city the size of Columbus, a growing city, did not have a, a nice downtown arena, sports arena. And uh, from there, again, like David said, everybody in the city came together, community and civic leaders, business leaders, even the high state uh, at that point was fairly friendly at that point. Um, so they came together, and that's really the genesis for what followed for Columbus and the chill. Yeah, and it involved, uh, we had a couple of the eventual NHL uh, jackets, um, 
minority owners in it uh, and involved in that. Uh, and John Wolf, who's owner of the Dispatch Media Group, Aram Pizzuti, who who was a, a big time developer in town. Um, you know, he was a champion of it too. But uh, yeah, it, it it's it started there with that moment. Uh, that's what that's what really um, galvanized uh, the idea of getting a downtown arena. Not th- not so much the NHL just yet, uh, but the uh, but the downtown arena, and that kept evolving. There were different, and we were involved in every step because after the the uh, task force, which is really the committee to su- uh, to study a, if we need a committee, uh, there was uh, a, a study by the. Uh, uh, Chamber of Commerce said, if we do a downtown arena and we have the chill as a tenant, we can uh, be successful. Uh, and the mayor and the mayor stood up and talked about that too. And then from there, it was actually, now we're going to get into how we go about funding it. And there was a 10-person task force, uh, multi-arena uh, task force, I think was the name of it, uh, Downtown Arena Commission, essentially. Uh, and we had two people from the chamber, two people from the city, two people from the Convention Visitors Bureau, uh, two from the county, because they were all potential funding mechanisms. And then there were two private people, uh, Doug Kreiler, who ran Kappa, which is the performing arts, and then myself. Uh, so we were on that, and that's what led to issue one. Um, we, you know, we met for, I don't know, it was close to a year, uh, and then uh, came out with a plan of this is how you go fund it, which became a tax, a short-term a sales tax, uh, uh, no, short, short-term tax initiative, uh, for about uh, about three years, and it, that if we got that done, we'd be able to build both an arena uh, and next to it a downtown soccer stadium for the new Columbus Crew. And um, so uh, that that is where you know the, the, these are all the evolutions. Then I'm throwing a lot that happened over a five uh, six year time period before we actually got to a vote, which failed. Uh, but that opened the door to you know. Uh, by then, the city leaders that were involved were all uh, invested. They wanted it to happen. And Gary Bettman wanted Columbus to happen. So we were given an extra uh, six weeks to figure it out. We could, even though there were 11 applications and they pretty much had the other three, they, they held the door for us uh, in Columbus. And, uh, and we were fortunate. Uh, again, that's a whole, whole other story in itself. Um, and that, you know, uh, Lamar Hunt was involved initially as the lead, uh, owner. Um, once it became, you know, not the, uh, the city owned arena, it was going to be much higher cost with the private. He opted out, uh, or he, you know, he had a, he was, you know, given a, a, a short period of time to make a decision. And then when he, when he didn't, uh, John McConnell, uh, one of the great city founders, uh, stepped in and, and, uh, and he's okay. If, uh, I will. I will buy the team. I will make it happen. And then, again, Ron Pizzuti, uh, John Wolf, uh, they were. Uh, they were. You know, also had investment in it. So, again, that group that was kind of in there at the beginning of that issue that we we're talking about um, uh, with 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 Ron Pizzuti and, and John Wolf, they end up being very much involved uh, uh, in the jackets um, in you know uh, ownership. But it's, it's interesting. It's interesting too because I mean, obviously, uh, Lamar Hunt sort of followed through at least on the on the soccer side later later in the uh, later yeah. in the decade, right? I was at that yeah. actually. Was at that very first game back in the day? Oh, so was um, I. So was and I. And yeah. I'm sure I saw you waving across the field uh, with uh, yeah. Michael Buffer uh, introducing the uh, 
the uh, the players at that uh, that game. Um, but it's also I, you're kind of maybe hearkening to which you know is twenty some odd years ago, which is eons, I guess, in the I guess the uh, the landscape of uh, arena building, right? And that uh, juxtaposed against uh, uh, public use and taxes and governments and stuff. I mean, we we spent a ton of time in this this show. Uh, getting into one of these very important areas, which is sort of this, let's call it civic pride stuff, right? Uh, you go to the mm-hmm. uh, the Indianapolis uh, Pacers and the Market Square Arena, and that is sort of the, or, or the Hartford Whalers story, right? All mm-hmm. those, you know, these are, and it almost harkens back to a time which frankly seems quaint when you look yeah. at it, the cynicism, uh, cynical lens of today, right? Where, hey, this could be a defining moment for us as a city, as a metropolitan area to step up, if you will, become truly major league. I think it's interesting and almost ironic, right, that uh, in many respects, a minor league hockey franchise, successful and out- outlandishly so, uh, w- would have been perceived as the, the impetus, the leverage, the root of this, right? But uh, it speaks, frankly, to you arguably punching above your weight in that regard or, and or tapping into the zeitgeist of a, of a city on, on, the, on the rise. I say, I say it's both. You know, again, it was, uh, you know, it was timing, it was fortunate, it was these things falling together, being part of this process along the way. But there were a lot of people, uh, a lot of people that, uh, you know, we went through that uh, commission, they were, you know, we had all, all points of contact in the city involved in that. And then we had, you know, kind of these glue sort of folks with John Christie, who used to run the chamber, but um, but he ended up, ended up being a uh, owner's representative uh, for, for Mr. McConnell. Um, and, you know, we had a relationship, he and another chamber member named Kathy Maney Little, and uh, they were they were kind of the glue to these other folks kind of between us and the political. And, uh, you know, they, they kind of knew that we were, you know, we were this kind of hot entity and that we were, you know, we were out, we were out to try to see how far we could take it. It was kind of like a fun experiment in a lot of ways, you know, but as a sports marketer, I mean, shoot, I, you know, East Coast hockey is a terrific product, but my gosh, we have a chance to really change and turn a city or be a part of that, whatever, whatever percentage of, uh, you know, uh, credit or involvement, you, you know, you give, give the chill at the end of the day. We were certainly a big part of it, um, especially early on, but we couldn't get it to the finish line. There's no way. Uh, that was at the end of the day going to be up to the, the city uh, and, and the, the titans of the city to, they, they could uh, afford to make it happen. Let's let's get the, let's get to the uh, the denouement, I guess, of the story, right? So I it see it feels to me, I, I, so a, a an amazing, albeit relatively brief, uh, run of success and outlandish uh, marketing and 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 becoming the thing uh, for uh, the younger audiences out there in Columbus and 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 by the end of your term there, right? Some actually some some championship caliber uh, hockey being played. Don't forget. Um, I guess, though, it, it feels to me like uh, there's also maybe a bittersweetness to some of this because my perception is that uh, it, you did a hell of a lot of the legwork and then some uh, to, if you will, maybe set the table for, dare I say, others to walk through your front door and take the mantle of big-time NHLness plus an arena, uh, or do you not see it that way? Well, no, I mean, it's, it's, you're either all in or you're not. And we, and I was, and I'd talked to our owner about it as the horn, you know, this is, this is something that we're going to either go for it or we're not and be part of it. 
Um, and we were rewarded on it. You know, Horn, Horn ended up uh, having, uh, you know, we, we, we cut a deal. He got a couple percent of the Jackets, you know. So that ended up being a pretty big reward for him. You know, I ended up joining the franchise, was with the Jackets in the VP capacity for 10 years. Um, so, you know, to me, that was a continuation, you know, of the story, which still goes on today. You know, and we built the ice rings and other things, too, to kind of help, you know, uh, really – uh, grow the game in the long term. Uh, so, you know, I, I again, I, it, it's collaboration, and, and it's never any any one thing. Again, I, there were a lot, there were a lot of people. Uh, and again, uh, I mentioned some of the key ones here, um, be it the connectors or be it uh, the power brokers. That uh, they were, you know, it doesn't it doesn't happen without them. The, the mayor, you know, it was. Uh, but yeah, I mean. Again, if we don't go back to that um, the scheduling issue um, that we had between year one and two, or the success and that and the and what had gravitated, uh, you know, that kind of wave of just unbelievable positive publicity that got people interested in the sport, and then that that arena, uh, uh, the Coliseum scheduling issue. If it doesn't happen, nothing does. I mean, if we if we go to Cleveland, it obviously doesn't happen. If we fall on our face, it doesn't happen. Uh, it needed it needed that to kind of kind of get it going, and uh, um, you know, again, uh, you know, it, it's it's rewarding as anything, you know, at the end of the day, um, to, uh, to have seen it happen. And again, it, it goes back to timing as well. Um, you know, the, the chill came along in '91. The NHL was expanding, but you know, they added four teams in 1997. If they would decide to add four teams in 1994. The chill, Columbus would not have been ready for it. There's just no way they would have been able to get it done by then. But they're That's it. perfect yeah. timing for it to happen for Columbus. And, you know, from 91 to 97, those six-year period, Columbus positioned itself well to get an NHL franchise. And if we'd, had, if we'd have been, if we'd been six months to a year later with <clears throat> any phase of that, <clears throat> even, you know, the chamber plan was not, you know, yeah, it would be great to get the NHL, but we can do this without the NHL. We can do this with the chill. Uh, if that doesn't get to the next phase and we go to the vote and the the, vote, the conversation about the vote was a two year just constant dialogue in town. So it wasn't like that people went to the ballots. They didn't like the tax issue, so they voted it down. Uh, but it wasn't like they weren't for the idea, you know, and uh, of the idea of having uh, something new, something, you know, downtown. And keep in mind, as, as vibrant as Columbus was all the way around, downtown was not. Downtown was kind of dead at five o'clock. Uh, correct, Greg? Was that my well, well, yeah. The, the, the arena, the arena is built around the side of a, the Ohio State Penitentiary, which had been closed for years and was crumbling. I used to go running downtown. I lived nearby, and uh, the sidewalks were filled with crumbling bricks and mortar from the, the penitentiary that had no upkeep on it for years. So yeah, that whole side downtown was a giant, vast wasteland. Uh, until the arena was built. Yeah, and then you have to think again. We haven't even mentioned nationwide. We haven't mentioned people like Bob Woodward because, again, they that you know, it's 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 nationwide insurance, nationwide realty that that ended up building. You know, picking it up once the boat went down. Like, yeah, Mr. McConnell will step up and and buy the team along with these other folks. But then we have to have an arena, and nationwide has that property. The city basically, the state gave it to the city, and the city more or less. Uh, turned it over to Nationwide and, and ended up building roads and so forth. Uh, and it's become this incredible development. Um, and if you, if you haven't been there and you haven't seen it, 
I mean, these are buildings that will be standing in 200 years. I mean, they're so solidly built. And it has completely changed the city, that the arena district and sports downtown, uh, the jackets, uh, all of it. And, uh, yeah, it, I mean, it, there were not people living downtown. Now there's there's got to be they, – they were hoping for 10,000. I think it's they're well past that. Um, you know, there's restaurants, bars, uh, you know, office space out your ears. I mean, it's just it's just an amazingly vibrant place. And the Clippers moved downtown a few years later, up in 2009 from uh, West Side. They built a beautiful ballpark uh, right next to Nationwide Arena. Yeah, one of the best you'll probably find in minor league baseball. And then coming, right, Craig, we got something else coming right west of them, which is like within a stone's throw of, of, of both those facilities. Yeah, you got the new uh, $300 million, $350 million soccer stadium for the crew is going to be opening up uh, almost a year from now. So that's still part of sort of part of the arena district. That, uh, finally, after 1997, tax issue failed for a soccer arena or a soccer stadium and a hockey arena. You know, now by 2021, they'll have both in downtown Columbus. So it's taken a while, but it's come full circle. All right. Well, a couple of quickies to sort of close that circle. Uh, number one, it does feel to me that uh, that this truly is underlined and punctuated uh, with uh, the civic, uh, shall we say, duty and people pulling in to sort of do the right thing for for the community, right? Which is, frankly, dare I say, refreshing, given the cynicism and the uh, big money uh, shenanigans that tend to sort of uh, surround a lot of these uh, arena projects and pro sports team ownership groups and all that kind of stuff. Well, there, there was phrase back in that era uh, uh, called pro- public-private partnership. You don't hear that as much as you used to. And I, that's exactly what this was. And, you know, you had the, uh, a really good convention center there, but they were dying for uh, something, you know, uh, you know, nearby to help, uh, help send people to, you know, on a, uh, in the evening or whatever for events or have additional space for, for their events that they want to do. So there was interest down there and interest in that downtown and that business community, um, you know, to, uh, to do things that would, you know, create new hotels and, and, and just jumpstart it. And, uh, but it, yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, you had, um, you had that kind of civic side of it uh, in the city leaders. And then you had, you know, somebody like John McConnell who had been so successful uh, in business and obviously a city icon. Then the day he's, he's, I'm not going to let this get away. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to buy this. I'm going to make this, you know, own this team. If Lamar is kind of stepping away, uh, or is it ready to grab the baton as fast as we need? Because you know the NHL is not going to stand by and wait on us forever. I will. And Mr. Mack, you know, you know he he and the folks at Nationwide. Uh, uh, then it built the building. They, you know, they finished the deal. I tell you, and it was uh, really phenomenal for the city. I know that you know the Jackets, uh, you know, finally starting, uh, you know, have some real success. Uh, had a great, obviously, uh, a stunning playoff uh, series. I guess was that was that only a year ago? Because it seems longer. <laughs> it seems longer, yeah. You know, the biggest first round upset in NHL. Uh, history uh their their fabric the hockey is fabric of that community we have the ice rinks kind of dot net we got those started back in the day with the chillers they've continued um even now i think craig columbus is one of the cities being you know really seriously considered to help finish the nhl season right yeah it's one of the 10 uh, hub, hub, potential hub cities they're going to pick two of them and columbus is one of the 10 uh, finalists for it 
And a lot of that has to do with the infrastructure that is built. And think about that. Uh, we, we came in, you know, there wasn't any infrastructure. <laughs> not, not to speak of, I mean, I love the Coliseum. Uh, it, was a, it was a great, as Greg said, barn. Fantastic, low roof, tight seats, uh, you know, uh, no room in hallways. Uh, but it was electric, you know. Um, but that was your choice. You know, you didn't have a second choice, really, to, to look at. Um, and the convention uh, space downtown, that ended up giving away just a big convention room. That arena went away. Um, and, uh, you know, now you have two, you know, world-class arenas and, and uh, you know, and again, the ice rinks uh, with, with the chillers and in several locations around the city. Um, it's now it's set up for this and the sports commission does really well with events, a great sports commission in Columbus. Linda Logan does a fantastic job. And, um, you know, Columbus is thriving, but it, you know what we said at the beginning of this, uh, podcast, I guess it was, it was a city, it was city to be had. It was there. Uh, it was just a matter of finding a, finding a way to, to break through. And that is not in any way, and disrespect to Ohio State, Ohio State football is still king, <laughs> you know, and and basketball is huge, uh, but the Jackets are too, and and uh, and the NHL in Columbus is is uh, is a very big deal. All right, well here's here's my last here's my last question, and I'll let you go. Um, what what is so? I, I, it's pretty clear what the legacy of of the Chill is because it it lives on in, in the Blue Jackets. So give me a sense though, how much has the uh, Blue Jackets franchise, uh, maybe through your involvement subsequently or separately, uh, is there any, shall we say, remembrance or deference uh, to the chill? Uh, has there been a throwback game? Uh, is there any sort of legacy remembering and or uh, hagiography, if you will? Because, you know, we just spent the last hour or so kind of describing, frankly, uh, much of the foundation that was set up for that franchise came through uh, your hard labor, no? Dave, I'll answer that, no. And it's been disappointing, uh, absolutely disappointing from my perspective. Uh, and and no why, Craig, why is that? I don't know. Well, early on, I think uh, Doug McClain, who was the GM and president of the team of the Blue Jackets, probably wanted to disassociate from a minor league hockey where the NHL chills minor league. Um, since then, I don't know, I, you know, once they get an outdoor game or stadium series game, I would love for them where it's some chill jerseys as throwback. Like Nashville's done with their minor league hockey team and Dallas is done with their minor league hockey team. I think it'll happen. And we have some good people in charge of the Blue Jackets now. Uh, but, you know, if you go around the arena, there's really no remembrance of the chill at all. It's, it's a shame. Uh, I wish somehow there was a, a Columbus Hockey Hall of Fame for not just the chill, but for the high school hockey, the high state hockey, people who developed hockey in Columbus. That'd be great. Uh, but so far, there's really been no impetus for it. Yeah, and, I'm, sorry, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to interrupt, but I'll let you finish, David. I, but but it's, this is not like a Cleveland Barons for two years that borrowed the name from the minor league team was two years and then kaput, they went out of business, yeah. literally the last franchise to collapse in the NHL. This, this is a much more uh, systemic uh, uh, rooting and foundational building of, of what that, with that you, we just, the chill, without the chill, there is no Blue Jackets. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, there's, you know, there's been a little bit. It's not been completely none, but uh, but there was at that there was a shift. It was just a shift. In a lot of ways, it was a natural thing to like. This is the NHL. This is going to be different. We need to make sure people understand that this is is two more levels up and 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 the greatest in in the, in the world. Um, yeah, I think there could have been more done, but you know, um, but you know, again, at, at the end of the day, it's the end result that matters the most, and that we have it and. Uh, you know, um, yeah, I, I think it's uh, uh, yeah, in quick story, John Christie and I, uh, who was the owner's representative, talked about the name. And we talked about uh, the chill briefly about, you know, is that something we should 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 carry? And uh, he and I were on the same page at the end of the day, but he was asking it to see how, how I felt about it. And I said, it, you know, as much as I would love that. And I think it would be fantastic. There is a part that we do need to have. Um, you know, it, it, it needs to be something, you know, else. It needs to be something bigger uh, than, than, than uh, East Coast, you know. And uh, uh, so I was, I was torn uh, on that answer a little bit because of the pride, obviously, we had in putting the team together and, and the success and the involvement we had. But at the same time, uh, I, 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 you know, again, I go, I put my marketing hat on again and be objective. I think then a lot of sense it, it, it made total sense to, 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 to break from that. And then, okay, now thank you for what you've done, but we're, this is now we're, now we're moving on to, on to the bigs. Tim, and one thing quickly, um, back in, in the Blue Jackets favor back in 2012, the chill reunion, um, they were honored and recognized the players that came in for the chill to the game they were honored at blue jackets game they were very gracious that night you know showed them on a video board and everything so that, that was fantastic and then uh just a few months ago eric weltner had released a documentary on the ihl team checkered skills and out and they were also feeded down at nationwide arena so there is now an acknowledgement of the fire lake hockey programs in columbus so that's great All right. Our thanks to Craig and Dave for a tremendous chat. Uh, the Columbus Chill is a story I knew nothing about and just saddened by the fact that I didn't know about how not only successful, but groundbreaking that franchise was. And you can learn more about them and the story of the Chill. In the book, it's called Chill Factor, How a Minor League Hockey Team Changed a City Forever. It is uh, available in hardcover wherever good books are found. Of course, you can find a link to it on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com. You'll find that convenient link to Amazon, uh, and you can uh, order that book that way. Or, and or, you can order in a pre-order fashion through that same link or going to amazon.com for Chill Factor, the paperback edition, which is going to be available in November, but if you want to pre-order it now... And lock in your savings. And by the way, maybe give us a few shekels of love too by going through that link on our website. You can get the paperback edition coming out on November 3rd, we think, of this year. And it will include uh, a whole bunch of, uh, of updates uh, and, uh, and new information uh, about the Columbus Chill. So you've got two, two excuses, if you will, to learn more about this uh, Chill team. The hardcover edition available now wherever books are found or on Amazon through our link or otherwise, or, and, or 
that pre-ordered version of the paperback edition, the updated edition to come in November. Either way, you're going to enjoy it to no end. And uh, the Columbus Chill will be part of your uh, history knowledge uh, as well as it is now mine. Uh, We want to thank, of course, uh, all of our uh, great sponsors, all of our great uh, listeners. We want to thank our pal Jerry Payne, uh, who has put together once again a fantastic uh, assemblage of assets that we have thrown his way this week. And he has produced something, something comprehensible and listenable. We appreciate all of his efforts. It's Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. If you want some help on your podcast or other audio uh, goodness, uh, we're happy to give you a high recommendation and pass you along to Jerry for for more information there. If you want to follow our little show uh, all around the web, you can do so by going, of course, to our website, goodseatstillavailable.com. You'll find all of our episodes, our dozens and dozens and dozens of episodes. Uh, There's probably a story or a league or a team that will be uh, a guaranteed delight for you, no matter what your persuasion or where you grew up or the the sport that you're an aficionado of hopefully will be uh have covered something or will cover something so uh, by all means bookmark that and come back and visit early and often uh, please rate and review us wherever you get uh, this podcast that certainly helps our algorithm a little bit and helps other people like you or maybe not even like you to discover the show uh we appreciate that wherever you can do that that's always a good thing you want to follow us on uh, social media you can do that too uh, on Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. That's all one word. Uh, on Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, you'll find us on Facebook as well. There's a page uh, devoted to us there. Uh, you can send us email at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, that goes uh, straight to our little inbox. And if you want to get our little uh, weekly email newsletter, you can do that too. There's a little link there on the website somewhere. Just uh, send us your uh, your email address and your name, and uh, you will get a an email usually on Saturday or Sunday, uh, which is usually a day or two before we send out our episodes each and every Monday morning, uh, and you'll be kind of the first on your block to know that. Um, let's see. I think that's it. So I think we'll leave you with a little uh, Columbus Chill audio, and uh, I think this just speaks for itself, don't you think? All right. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening, and... Uh, Take care. The temperature is dropping, getting cold outside. Still in the closet, pull out my high. Hit the streets looking for something to do. I want to get inside. I want to raise the roof. Chillin'. Come on, chillin'. Chillin'. Let's go chillin'. My feet take me down by the state fairgrounds. My ears get tuned through the thundering sound. People yelling, screaming in the old coliseum. Gotta check that out. Wanna look, wanna see them. Blaze the flash and their steel on ice. I did a double take, man. I had to look twice. They're slamming the Columbus chill, man, these dudes are jamming Chillin', come on, chillin', chillin', let's go chillin' I'm chillin', he's chillin', we're chillin', let's go chillin' Rocco and the boys stirring up the crowd People are yelling, fans getting loud You wanna see some action, put the puck in the net You think you've seen something, you ain't seen nothing yet
mess on his truck.